and I'm presenting on prayer. In fact, this is the the last of a series of um, lessons we've been uh, having over the past few weeks exploring the theme of prayer and uh, I'm hoping to sort of well, I'm hoping to do a good job of wrapping up the series this morning and I hope that um, we can finish on a very practical note. Um, I want to begin with the question, very personal question, and I think for many Christians it's a, it's a bit of an intimidating question. Where are you at with prayer? I think uh, most of us recognise that from a Christian point of view prayer is supposed to be very important but I also think that for many of us, prayer remains somewhat of a bit of a, a mystery. Um, I guess on, on, on one uh, end of the spectrum, if you will, there is the idea of, or the ideal, of being totally in tune with God. I, I don't know what your experience or what your reading, for example, may have been in this regard, but uh, uh, there's a very cl- uh, well-known classic uh, book dealing with the theme of prayer um, by a fellow named Brother Lawrence back several hundred years ago. And um, the book is entitled Practising the Presence of God. And the ideal is that that, that I walk through the day uh, consistently aware of the presence of God and engaging with God in that way. And so prayer there is understood in very broad terms and understood in terms of, well, perhaps Paul's language when he speaks of praying without ceasing in First Thessalonians. Um, that might seem a bit of a mysterious uh, uh, statement, um, a bit of a strange statement. If we just limit our understanding of prayer to uh, 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 uttering out loud uh, thanks to God, for example, or, or asking God of a favour. I mean, how many favours are there to pray without ceasing? You know, or how many things are there to be thankful for to pray without ceasing? Because prayer, in that sense, is speaking much more broadly of a, a, a way of relating to God. And so we might associate that sort of thinking with a, with a mystical practice. And a, yes, very nice in theory, but in practice, um, you know what? I'm not a monk. Uh, I don't have the luxury of living uh, with nothing to do but to, but to sort of meditate upon God sort of thing. On the other extreme, I, I suspect that for many Christians, the sense of being uncertain and confused, perhaps about prayer. Perhaps I've been disappointed about prayer. When I pray, it seems that very often... Too often, perhaps, my, answer, my prayers aren't answered and so that leads me to be doubtful about the effectiveness or the worthwhileness of prayer. And, of course, a lack of use, a lack of practice, can lead to forgetfulness on our part. Uh, if something doesn't become habitual with us, then we tend to overlook it and just forget about it. And so I guess they're two extremes, if you will, and I suggest that and expect that probably for those of us here this morning, our experience is something more in, in the middle. We don't hesitate to be thankful to God. We're, we're mindful of God's activity in our lives and we recognise the goodness of God. And so we don't hesitate to stop and say thank you to God. And also when we are in trouble, when we're under stress, in need in some sense. We don't hesitate again 
to uh, capitalise, if you will, on that privilege that is rightfully ours as children of God to, as the Apostle Paul put it, to cast our cares upon the Lord. I want to just quickly recap on a couple of lessons as we've been uh, um, um, through the last few weeks. Um, you might remember from about three weeks ago, we looked at the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount and a couple of observations in that context. Jesus made it very plain that prayer is for our benefit. Prayer is not about God, it's not for God's benefit. It's about our benefit. God calls upon us to pray because it is good for us. Not the least of the reasons being that God already knows what we need. God already knows even what we want. He doesn't need to hear it from us. We need to be humble. We need to hear it, as it were, from from ourselves. And in that way, prayer forms and shapes us in our orientation towards God. Indeed, in our orientation not just towards God, but towards one another and towards all of life. Because in prayer, necessarily, we move ourselves out of the centre to focus upon God, to focus upon others. And out of that perspective, we live, we live a life that is God-centred, that is other-centred. Not to the exclusion of ourselves, of course, but, but that is, is not solely about me. That the only thing I ever think about is me and my wants and my desires and my needs. And that might extend to you, but only in so much as you serve my needs, my wants, my desires. The challenge, if you will, of, of, of Christianity, the call of Christ, if you will, is precisely to move away from that position of self at the centre to be rightly aligned in that way with, with God at the centre and concern about our relationship with the Creator as well as one another as creatures made in the image of God. And so you'll remember the model prayer. And I mean, read it along with me if you would. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I've used the New King James text there because I don't know about your experience, but my experience has been that's the familiar wording close to the, uh, the King James, of course. And I, I tried to illustrate in arguing that, um, uh, in repeating those words as Jesus said, pray this way, that it's not vain repetition to recite those words as Jesus recommends. And the reason it's not vain repetition is, is, is apparent when we understand what's going on. So I described that Jesus' model of prayer shapes us. Every time we would say this prayer, we are being influenced, we are being formed, we are being shaped in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God is holy. 
every time you might pray that prayer. And I don't know if several weeks ago I recommended this, but I, I would recommend to any Christian that you could not have a better way to start a day when you wake up than to have these words on your lips as the first things that you might say or, or think to begin every day. God is holy. God is redeeming his world through his son, Jesus Christ. God invites us to join him in his work of redemption through our discipleship to Christ. Your kingdom come. Your reign, your rule, may it spread and prosper. And may I, as a disciple of your son, play my part this day in honouring and celebrating your will. Give us this day our daily bread, that daily reminder that God is faithful. He will provide. You know what? Sometimes it might not feel that way, but you know what? Yesterday, well, you got through yesterday, didn't you? And the day before, and the year before, perhaps it, perhaps it was a really critical challenge a year ago. There might have been some huge health issue that you were worried about or some personal crisis with the family that you thought, I don't know how we're going to cope with this. I don't know how we're going to recover from this. But guess what? Here you are today. I might hasten to add probably a better and stronger person as a result for having endured that hardship. But here I am today. God has come through. God provides. And if I can remember that and if I can believe that, I can face all the challenges because I know I'm not facing them alone. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. God forgives and we're so very grateful for that. But also, I'm called upon by the God who forgives me to likewise be gracious and forgive others. You know, in this world, but in our society today, it's, it just seems that things are going crazy. And I think one ingredient that's just slipped off the radar of most people as we move into what people want to call the post-Christian era, as if that's a good thing. Personally, I think it's a frightening prospect, but the post-Christian idea, we've moved on beyond, beyond, beyond Christianity as a society. And so it's all about identity politics and political correctness and my rights. Grace and forgiveness are among the many casualties of that way of thinking. When we pray the model prayer, we're reminding ourselves and being shaped by that thought, by that reminder, that I can be the difference in this world. I can be the difference that this world needs by being a gracious and forgiving person just as my Father in heaven is gracious and forgiving of me. Lead us not under temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God allows us to be tested to sanctify us, to set us apart. As we ask for deliverance from evil, 
note, but not from the trial of sojourning through this world which leads to the new heavens and the new earth. There's hopefulness. So, again, at the risk of having the introduction become or use up all of the time of the whole lesson, just a reminder of where we've been in our thinking about our discussions about prayer to this point. Nathan gave us a, a very encouraging lesson uh, on, on, on prayer in the Old Testament, you might remember, uh, and that demonstrates that prayer goes way beyond presenting God with wish lists, as it were. It is perfectly legitimate to bring our concerns and our needs to God. If you want to call that a wish list, then, then, then fine. Go ahead and call it a wish list. But it's much more than that. Prayer is much bigger than that. Prayer, you remember Nathan pointed out, is often contending and wrestling with God. He gave us examples from Job and Jacob and Hannah. Prayer taps into the wonder that we can influence God. We can influence God. How good is that? In a, in a, in a proper and respectful way, how, how important are we that the creator God of heaven will listen to us and that we can influence him Extraordinary. And of course, the fundamental awareness that prayer flows out of a relationship with God. Indeed, prayer, the practice of prayer, grows our relationship with God, which is a collaborative relationship. God wants us to cooperate with Him, God wants us to work with Him and for Him. As we come now more specifically to the New Testament, just a couple of things I want to highlight very very briefly, but I think importantly uh, that, that, that we understand this. Jesus frequently engaged in prayer. You cannot read the Gospels and not be impressed with that reality. Whatever else you say about Jesus, he was a man of prayer. He engaged in prayer publicly. Uh, he engaged fully in the life of the synagogue and, of course, in the life of the temple. Both contexts incorporate prayer, public prayer. You remember the incident, uh, John chapter 11, where, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and Jesus makes a point of making his prayer public, his thanksgiving public to the Father, so that the people would hear and understand the credit for this wonder goes to God. But because Jesus also was a man of private prayer. If we wonder about in the Sermon on the Mount what Jesus meant by, in contrast to making a show of prayer, making a big deal about it to, to sort of draw attention to yourself, and in a culture where, where piety was, was cherished, and honoured, that was a good way of bringing attention to yourself to aggrandise yourself. And it would seem, in the context of the first century, that, that many among the Jewish establishment, if you will, the religious establishment, were treating prayer that way as a show. In contrast, you remember what Jesus said? If that's what it's about, you have your reward. 
If, you, if you're shooting for the attention of people, you, you've got it. Well done. You've achieved your objective. But it doesn't achieve anything more than that. Instead, if your purpose is to relate to God, if your purpose is to honour God, then you go into a closet and pray in private. And, and I don't think Jesus was advocating the practice of literally going into a wardrobe, I, I guess. If any of you have a dedicated wardrobe, a prayer wardrobe at home, I think that's fine. But I'm not sure that that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. I think he had in mind something more like this, which was typical of his own practice. In Luke chapter 5, once when he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. And of course, Jesus graciously responds, yes, yes. Verse 15 there, but now more than ever the word about Jesus spread abroad and many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. But he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. Throughout the Gospels you get this clear image of Jesus. He would, this movement, this toing and froing, he would engage with the people, teaching, healing, exercising demons, But then he would withdraw, more often than not, into the wilderness, into the aloneness, to be alone in that proverbial closet (laughs) with God and to devote that time to prayer. Uh, Again, just prior to the selection of the apostles, we notice that Jesus engages in prayer. He withdraws and is praying to the Father in preparation for this very significant event. Jesus was a a person of prayer. Another insight I think that's important for us to notice from the New Testament is that in terms of time after the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, after his ascension to take his place at the right-hand side of the Father in the heavenlies to begin his rule, The church that was established as a result of all of that noticeably acts in the name of Jesus. Now, you know, when I say that phrase, I have things going around in my head. You know, I've heard it said, you know, what does that mean? Well, we talk about open up in the name of the law, in the authority. And and that might be some element of that. But I think more generally, more more broadly, if you will, it's just saying this is all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about us. This is all about Jesus. And whatever is being accomplished is being accomplished through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. Acts 2.38 the very first proclamation of the gospel as a historically as an accomplished fact. Jesus died and on the third day he was raised from the dead. And we are witnesses of that, says Peter and the other apostles. And that those who heard the message wanted to know, what do we do about it? What can we do? 
What's the appropriate response? You remember well Peter's words, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A little later on, another notable miracle, this time performed by Peter and John, and in explaining to the people who were thinking, what, a, what, what marvel, what wonder that you guys have achieved. And he said, Peter said, no, no, not us. This was done by the name of Christ Jesus. Uh, in Acts 4.18, the, 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 the pattern is so well established, so well understood by now in the community that the Sanhedrin can say, we ordered you to stop speaking in the name of this Jesus fellow. The church at least in those days, was all about Jesus, including prayer. You notice Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. Giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to suggest from a New Testament perspective, from a this side of the cross perspective. Prayer, as is much of the teaching and the practice of the church, the people of God, it's Trinitarian. It's Trinitarian. It's about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice, if you will, and again, we, we don't have the luxury of time to fully establish this. You'll have to take my word for it. But I don't think it's so presumptuous that you would have difficulty with it. We pray in the Spirit. And my language there is very deliberate. We pray in the Spirit, in our Spirit, with our Spirit. To Spirit, with a capital S. Our little s Spirit, communing with God through the capital S, Spirit. We pray in the Spirit to the Father through the Son. Again, the New Testament goes to great lengths to impress upon us that Jesus is the mediator, the middle person, if you will, between us and God. So it ought not to be difficult for us to understand that when we pray in the Spirit, with the Spirit, communing with the Spirit of God to the Father through the Son. When we say, in Jesus' name we pray, that's a deliberate acknowledgement that we are approaching the Father. We are availing ourselves of that great privilege but acknowledging that that privilege is only possible through his Son. And so we approach him through the Son. In summary point, I guess, Jesus described to his disciples, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I mean, I don't want to get hung up. I don't want you to get hung up on formulas. I don't want you going away now and thinking, well, man, I've got to be sure I've got that formula right for my prayer to work. Well, I'm not, I'm not talking about formulas what I am talking about, and I don't know why anybody would want to argue with this or why any believers would want to challenge this, what I am saying is that Christianity is Trinitarian. 
and that as we approach a Trinitarian God in prayer, all three members of the Godhead are involved and all three members of the Godhead are involved in this way, we address the Father through the Son and as we, through our spirit, little s, Paul makes it pretty clear, I think, in Scripture, not the least in Romans chapter 8, where he talks about the, the, the Spirit of God translates, if you will, our prayers for God or in the presence of God. More from the Sermon on the Mount. And now, you know what? We're just getting to the lesson. Matthew chapter 7. I thought this would be, of all of the things that the New Testament says about prayer, I thought this is, this is getting to the crux of the matter. The thing is, as Christians, that we need to be aware of, we need to consider, we need to be challenged by. And you'll recognise the language here. Um, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, ask, seek, knock. I want to suggest to you that these three critical issues underlie an essential biblical understanding of prayer. To ask... Dare I bother God? Is he safe? Does he even care? Now, these might sound like strange questions or sentiments to propose that a Christian might wrestle with. But I think they are questions that some of us have. Jesus depicts here God as a faithful father a faithful father who always and only relates to his children on the basis of love, agape, unconditionally willing and doing what's in the best interests of the other. Do we believe that? Can we trust God? Easy to say with the intellect. Oh yes, I believe God, I trust God. Easy to say that, especially in company where it's the expected. It would be pretty controversial, I imagine. Strange even to stand here and say, I don't really trust God at all. But do I trust God? I think as we explore further, the legitimacy of that question becomes apparent. Does prayer really work? Well, what style of parenting does God adopt? This brings us to the question related to 
whether or not I trust God. What sort of God do I trust? What sort of parent is the God in whom I'm called to trust? And why doesn't God always meet my expectations? seems to me there's a number of options. We can view God as the absent parent. You're on your own, kid. Now, some of us might think that's great news. Beauty! Um, one of the most treasured moments in life for me as a young teenager was when mum and dad on a Saturday morning in those days, the shopping hours were kind of peculiar. They didn't open 24-7 in those olden days. Saturday morning was mum and dad's day to go shopping. So Stephen was up excited as soon as they were out the door put the stereo on which in those days was those funny black disc things crank up the volume I'm sure the neighbours hated Saturday mornings (laughs) crank up the volume and away you go deep purple deep purple my favourite I'm trying to think of other names nothing comes to mind it's just it's all a dim dark memory now Um, but uh uh, yeah, no parents around, no restraints. How good, how good could that be? Or, of course, sad, we know that there is a very significant downside where there is parental neglect. Um, the whole issue of kids dragging themselves up without the benefit of, of mature guidance um, I think as a society, you know, we suffer a lot as a consequence of that kind of thing. Maybe the other extreme, the permissive parent, the so-called helicopter parent, the one who, who bends over backwards, can't do enough for a child. And of course it's a formula for raising spoiled children. Children who see themselves as being the centre of the, the universe. Now, I don't think anybody here would have this image of God. This image of God is held by some people. Um, the absent parent. I mean, you go back a couple of hundred years and, and, and uh, a view of God popularly described as deism. The idea that the, 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 the creator God made everything, but like a, like a, a big clock, he just wound it up and then walked away and he no longer is present to his creation. He no longer cares about his creation. He got it all started but then we're on our own now. That was a very prominent intellectual movement in the West back in the days when uh, most of those who uh, uh, were authors of the American Constitution were, were, were deists in that sense. And I guess, I guess a lot of people today, a lot of believers, I guess, have the idea that God's one big Santa Claus, that, that it's, all about, it's all about me and, and, and what's in it for me. But I don't think any of us in this room are caught up with that. But I want to suggest to you that there are two other views of God's parenting style that we need to pay attention to. The controlling parent raising puppet children. Predestination as individual determinism. Um, there are a number of theological systems that are prevalent among believers that advocate this view of God, this understanding of God. Um, 
Uh, and it predates Christianity. I mean, the Greco-Roman world uh, was very much driven by this sense of fate. It's fated. And whatever is fated is determined. You can't change your fate. Um, theological systems like Calvinism. Again, this idea that everything, God is the great puppet master. God has written, written the script and all we can do is carry that script out. We'll give lip service to freedom of will because the Bible seems to teach that. That doesn't make much sense. But in reality, I don't have any space for free will on this, on this way of thinking. In fact, in reality, if I'm honest with myself, I ponder the question, why pray at all? If, if I can't do anything but follow a predetermined script and I can't change God's mind, then why pray? Why pray? Very good question. And I suspect that for some that might be, if that's your idea of God's parenting style, that might be subconsciously, if not consciously, a bit of a, a problem. Why do something that seemingly would be pointless when it's all predetermined? A singular path, no choice. No choice but that singular path that God has already established for me. I don't want to suggest, I want to recommend this as, a, as the biblical understanding of God's parenting style, if you will. An agape parent seeking to raise responsible Children, where predestination is understood as, as a collective rather than the individual. It's about the community, but it's about Christ. Christ is the one who was predetermined before history, if you will. Christ is God's elect, the chosen one. And we connect with that predestination and that election, that chosenness, precisely because of our association with Jesus Christ. When we become part of his community, we're embraced in those plans and those promises of God. God's predetermined will is that I or we be conformed to the image of Christ. Paul's pretty explicit about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. But and here's the scary bit. The Christ was all about suffering before glory. That's the path of the Christ, the way of the Christ, the way in which God predetermined would be his experience and that of everybody who would choose to become his disciple. Suffering before glory. Therefore, we should choose, there's your free will, your legitimate expression of free will, we should choose the path among many options. It's not just that there's one path laid out and only one possibility, therefore. Every day of the week we are faced with multiple choices, multiple challenges, multiple questions. And we have the privilege 
as the children of God, with the benefit of all of God's instruction, all of God's encouragement, to make wise choices, to take responsibility for ourselves. None of this, oh, it must be the will of God. Well, if it's in harmony with scripture, that would be a confident, a right thing to say. But more often than not, people, when they use that phrase, they mean something entirely different, as if this is the predetermined, and I have no real choice in the matter. It's God's will that I accept this promotion. Just a bit of a side benefit that it means more money and other benefits accrue to me as a result. It may have been God's will that you decline that promotion. That you decline that extra money, which was going to mean another 20 hours a week (laughs) that's going to be expected of you by your employer. 20 hours a week that's taken away from time with family or, or, or other me- means of servicing God, the church. These are the choices we are allowed to make. And we seek to make them on the basis of what is the most Christ-like, what is the most God-honouring choice. Now, we're fallible. We might make a mistake But that's life, isn't it? That's what leads to growth. Through our trial and error, we grow, we mature, and thus we become better servants of God. Not as puppets, but as children of God, daily growing more and more like our Father. We easily forget our own creaturely finitude and our dependence upon an infinite and benevolent creator God. Genesis 3, that's the story of the fall, isn't it? Um, And Job, poor Job, struggling with the circumstances in life. I am a righteous person. I might not be perfect, but I try to be good and honour God and live as God wants. And, And he's allowed this to happen to me. You remember God's response at the end of the day? Trust me. Let God be God and let the creature be the creature. Job, trust me. Ray, trust me. Mike, Michelle, trust me. That's all that God says. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Which leads us to the question, what exactly are my expectations of God? Once I have a picture of of God in my mind as his parenting style, if you will, the next question is, what are my expectations of this parent? We live in an age of unprecedented self-centeredness and consumerism. And of course, Christians are not immune to such temptations. We need to recognise that there is a difference between needs and wants. I know that's shocking, but it's real. There is a difference between what I need and what I want. I'm not saying it's not legitimate to have wants 
What I am saying is you need to recognise there is a difference between what I need and what I want. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a need. That's a need. Give me this day a BMW. That's a want. That's a want. Might be okay, but it's not a need. The world says you're number one and your wants are needs. We have, we have multi-billion dollar industries, notably the advertising industry, whose task is to make you dissatisfied and make you spend perfectly good money and resources on something that you probably don't need at all. And you'll go ahead and and, and spend that money and those resources for something that will sit in a garage or sit in a cupboard somewhere. I'm an authority, I know, I've got cupboards full of stuff. Stuff that at the time seems so important, I really need this. But then once I have it, can't think of an excuse to use it. So often it sits in a cupboard or in the backyard somewhere, maybe throw a tarp over it and I can forget that folly. Being told no is difficult for us. Being told to wait is difficult for us. When we come to prayer and considering our expectations of God and we might think, you know, God's let me down time and time again by not answering my prayer. Maybe it's because we're not differentiating between our needs and our wants. Maybe it's because we're not willing to accept the the answer, no. No is just as much an answer as yes is. Sometimes I want to say very often and I want to say thankfully because some of the things I know in my experience, some of the things that I've asked God for, I'm so glad he never gave. So glad he didn't listen to me or that he listened to me but said no. Knock. Am I hopeful enough? Knock. Knock and it will be opened to you. What's my expectation in knocking? In knocking that God might open the door. What what am I expecting when the door opens? Perhaps my experience with prayer or with life in general has been one of disappointment. Perhaps I'm struggling with the parental no and the need for discipline in the process of maturing. That is God's way of suffering before glory in the footsteps of Jesus. And I want to conclude with this example. We talk about prayers in the New Testament. I would gather that most of us would think of Gethsemane. I mean, surely that's the prayer of all prayers. And yet think about the rich insights that we can learn from that context. There's an interesting painting. I wasn't able to track down the the artist or anything about the the image. 
But I've still put the image up because it, it captures you, you. You remember the narrative how Jesus retreats to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is on the very eve of his betrayal. And he's there knowing full well what lies ahead. He's there with his disciples and he takes apart Peter, James and John, that, that inner circle among the twelve. He says, watch and wait with me, will you? At this time, more than ever, I need friends. I need the support of friends. Watch and wait with me. And so Jesus goes aside a little way. Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup of suffering pass. I know, Father, what lies ahead. Isn't there any way, some way, a different way? And his friends, and and I don't know about you, but I kind of think sometimes my prayers look more like the disciples than Jesus. They've fallen asleep. (laughs) They've fallen asleep. Of all the times when Jesus needed their support, their prayers, they're not there. And it's not a criticism so much of their character, it's just the the, the human weakness, their frailty. So Jesus goes back, and this happens three times. Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. And the anguish is so great, Jesus is sweating drops of blood. Extreme anxiety. Nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. There's your model for prayer, for Christian prayer. Not my will but your will be done. Knowing as a Christian, knowing as one who has embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel if it's not the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus? At least at heart, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. That sounds suspiciously like suffering before glory. This is the essence of a Christian understanding of the world. Suffering before glory. So why would we be surprised? Why would we be disappointed when we find that in life, including our prayer life, sometimes things don't work out as we would like them to? as we think they should. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Do we trust God enough to ask, to seek and knock on his terms? We can ask and seek and knock on our terms, all the good stuff that God's going to give me.
But the question is, not am I going to approach God as a consumer, but as a disciple of Jesus Christ, approaching him on his terms.